Well, good morning, church. I am thankful for the privilege to be here with you this morning and to open up the Word of God with you. If you have your Bibles and want to turn to John chapter 8 this morning, that's going to be our text, John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, but you're maybe using the the Pew Bible and following along with us, you can find the text we're going to look at on page 947. And as you're turning there this morning, I want to paint a a story for you, a fictitious story uh, about a court case this morning. Our society here in the United States is obsessed with criminal court cases and trials. All you have to do is open your news app and you are immediately bombarded with reports of different uh, news uh, or uh, criminal court cases that are going on, reports about that, opinions on it, facts. Um, We love to follow closely the current cases, right? Many of you in here uh, no doubt followed the Murdaugh case over the last several months, uh, maybe some other cases as well. But our society also enjoys uh, viewing uh, old criminal cases or cold cases that uh, maybe have gone unsolved or maybe have some question marks around uh, uh, the, the, the verdict that was put on the person who was sentenced. And so if you open up Netflix or even your podcast app, we are flooded with different uh, forms of viewing these court cases. We're obsessed with it. We're intrigued by it. And we can't get enough with it. So what I want to do for you today is I want to paint for you a picture of a court case, all right? Imagine you're following along this high-profile court case, and and really it appears to be an open-and-shut case. The evidence that's presented is overwhelmingly uh, convincing that the, the person who's charged or accused of guilt is guilty. The testimonies given by the witnesses are incredibly incriminating and condemning. Even towards the end of the trial, in face of all of the evidence presented, the guilty party, instead of holding on to his plea of not being guilty, changes his position because it's clear that he's guilty. And so he acknowledges his guilt And tries to spin the story in a way so that his sentencing will be less. The jury deliberates and unanimously agrees to charge the accused person as guilty. It goes before the judge. The judge renders the same charge. And after all the closing statements and charges are rendered, it comes time for the judge to sentence the guilty party. And in this fictitious case, depending on whatever the crime is, it's in agreement with the state and federal laws that the crime that was committed has a clear penalty, which is death. And so it comes time for the sentencing, and the judge, with all the evidence, with all the clear guilt, looks at the guilty party And instead of sentencing them to death, he renders a different sentence, a non-sentence, if you will. He doesn't dismiss their guilt. He doesn't tell them, uh, oh, it's not a big deal. We'll let this one slide. He acknowledges that they're guilty, 
but then he lets them go free. Now, I want you to imagine if that case were real in our day, how you would respond to that. If you were following the case, if you were getting the Twitter updates or the email notifications through and through, and, and it was clear that this, was, this person was guilty, they committed the crime, they, they, they weren't sorry for it, they, they were hardened by their guilt, and the judgment that the judge renders, the sentencing, is not to say they're not guilty, but to not sentence them justly. In our society, that would be outrageous. There would be rioting in the streets. The court of public opinion would eviscerate that, uh, that guilty person and the judge. There would be uh, questioning about the judge's legitimacy and uh, worthiness to judge and, and, and whether or not there uh, was any misconduct that was handled. And what we're going to see in the text that we're studying this morning is that this fictitious court case parallels in some ways to a Jewish court case that came to Jesus during his life. Certainly there's some major differences, but there's one clear similarity. The guilty party is charged as guilty but then is not sentenced for their wrongdoing. The guilty party is charged with their guilt, but they are not sentenced. The guilty will go free. And so what we're going to discover in this text this morning are some wonderful truths about Jesus. How he interacts with sinners. How his holiness and his wisdom perfectly balanced with his graciousness and his mercy. Before we look at this text, there's one other thing I need to address before we begin to unfold the truth. You may see it in your scriptures. Some scriptures have brackets around this text. Um, Some uh, have a a note there, a footnote. Mine has like a very clear uh, capitalized heading that says something along this lines. The earliest manuscripts do not include these verses, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And there's no way around that in the text. So what are we supposed to do with that? How are we uh, supposed to read this and, and interact with this passage? Because the temptation would be to ignore it. If you're like me when it comes to devotionally approaching the scriptures, you don't want to take the time or you don't have the time to dig into what, uh, what that could mean. I don't think that's a helpful way for us to approach the text this morning. Uh, I don't think it's helpful for us to just ignore that it's not there. But I also don't think it's helpful for us to dive into the weeds of what that means and and how to figure that out. So what I want to do is offer you a brief solution. Because the controversy over this text, as I've studied it this week, is that some of the original manuscripts don't include this text. They either have no record of it or they have a portion of it. Some of them place it in different places in the scripture or different parts of John or even in Luke. There's some questioning about the terms that are used here because they don't appear anywhere else in the book of John. And as I studied this, the conclusion I came to is is this. It's not really a question of whether or not this text 
is genuine or is true from the life of Christ. There's plenty of evidence from that. It's, it's consistent with the character of Christ in the rest of the Gospels, and that's why it's included in our Bible. It's not a question of if it's true. The question is, who wrote it, and where does it fit in, in the story of Scripture? Where does it fit in the Gospels? And so rather than debating and, and getting into the weeds on that, because the reality is there are good Gospel-grounded brothers and sisters who would disagree with that conclusion, and that's okay. Because the gospel calls us to be united, not uniform. Which means we can have differences of opinions on things that are minor. And, and so we can look at this text and we can trust that this is a genuine story. This is uh, something that really happened in Christ's life. Whether or not it was included in John's writing or he wrote it, we can disagree on. And it doesn't change the truth that the, to- the, the story is teaching us. Because what we're going to see in this text are truths about Jesus as he interacts with sinners and how they're consistent with everything, the, everything else that the scripture teaches us and points us to Christ. So my prayer this morning is that we would see more of our merciful, gracious, and holy Savior, Jesus Christ, Let me read the passage for us this morning, and then I'll pray, and we'll start to unfold it. John chapter 8, verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said that to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, as we look at this text this morning and we begin to try to understand what's going on in the life of Christ here as we see his interactions with different people groups, the the scribes and the Pharisees and this uh, sinful, adulterous woman. God, would you give us insight and clarity to see your heart towards sinners? Would we behold you, Jesus, this morning in your holiness and your wisdom and your mercy and your grace? And would we be transformed as we behold you through your word to be more and more like your son? Would you do a work in us this morning? In your name we pray, amen. So what we have here in this text is a Jewish court case of sorts. 
The scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, clearly guilty of this sin, clearly breaking the law of Moses, and they bring her to Jesus to pronounce judgment on her. But as we have read this text, we see that this trial is not really about the woman. It's actually about Jesus. They're putting Jesus on trial here. If you look back at John chapter 8, verse 6, it says this. They said this to test him. That is, they brought her and asked him what they should do in accordance with the law that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. Why were the Jewish leaders testing Jesus? Well, if you're, rem- if you're familiar and you remember from the Gospels, that the scribes and Pharisees, this became their common practice as they interacted with Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. Not because he was a bad person, not because uh, there was any flaw in him. They didn't like Jesus because he wasn't like them. Jesus didn't fit into their box or their mold. Jesus didn't join their club of elite status. The, the religious leaders of the day were a big deal. They were the protectors and the teachers of the law. When people looked at them, when they walked by, people stopped and they paid attention. When the religious leaders spoke, people listened. They had the power, the status, the respect, the influence, and the wealth. And when Jesus came along and started teaching with authority, with power, performing signs and miracles that they couldn't explain. The Pharisees, when he didn't dress like them, talk like them, act like them, support them or hang out with them, the Pharisees did not like him. They didn't understand him. They obviously recognized there was something unique about Jesus. He taught with authority. He did things that nobody could explain. But when Jesus started saying things that they didn't understand and doing things that they didn't understand, that started to ruffle their feathers. If you remember in Matthew chapter 9, there's a story of Jesus when he calls his disciple Matthew. And he calls him out of being a tax collector. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst in Jewish society. They were hated. They were seen as traitors, cheaters, liars, thieves. Jesus called that kind of person to follow him. And not only to follow him, but he started hanging out with him. And he went and had dinner with him and all of his friends. And the religious leaders of the day couldn't believe it. They didn't understand it. How could Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? That was so different. And Jesus, when he heard it, he looked at him and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, and he's not saying that these people are righteous, as we'll see. He said, I came to call the sick, the people who realize that they're messed up and they're enslaved to sin, not those who think they have it all together. And the Jewish religious leaders didn't understand Jesus. They didn't like him. They didn't understand him. They were jealous of him. 
because people listened to him and followed him. As we saw in John chapter 12 a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday, as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem to die, people were laying branches and clothing down and and chanting praise to him. And the Pharisees were looking on with envy saying, look, the world is going after him. What are we to do? We've got to stop this guy. The Pharisees did not like Jesus. So it's in the middle of this tension that we find this story of Jesus and the adulterous woman and the scribes and Pharisees. They brought her to test Jesus. Look back at verses 4 and 5. They said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? The scribes and Pharisees thought they had come up with the perfect trap for Jesus. In their minds, Jesus regularly and blatantly disregarded the law of Moses. Remember, these are the, the, the teachers and protectors of the law. They, uh, they thought that they mediated the law to the average person. And they had created this whole system of rules and regulations that in their minds helped them not only keep the law, but actually created righteousness for them. And when Jesus came along and he started re- uh, uh, teaching differently than that and explaining what the law actually meant and what its purpose was, undermining their teaching and authority, they thought Jesus did not care about the law, at least in ways that they did. Remember the man from Mark chapter 3 who had a withered hand, who Jesus, out of love for him, was moved to heal him on the Sabbath. And it caused the scribes and Pharisees to be outraged. We've already noted Jesus hung out with sinners and extended grace to people who the Pharisees would have seen as people who were beyond help, beyond grace. And so they thought they came up with this trap that knowing Jesus' character and his history and what, what they interpreted him to do, that if they could get Jesus to either condemn this woman or not condemn him, either way they would win and they would discredit Jesus. Because in their minds, if Jesus doesn't condemn this woman but extends grace like we see all throughout the gospel, then he's clearly going against the law of Moses and his teachings can be discredited by the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't care about God. We care about the law. We're the protectors of the law. Don't listen to him anymore. But if Jesus upheld the law, then he would get lumped in with them. The the people who were following him would stop following him because they would see him as just like the scribes and Pharisees, no different than them. His message wouldn't be any different. There would be no hope, no grace, and even more so, potentially, Jesus could be publicly Uh, arrested by Rome who was overseeing the Jews if he upheld the law all the way through because Jews were not allowed to kill people under Roman law at this point. 
So in their minds, they've got the perfect test. Jesus, Jesus is done. And so they ask Jesus, what do you say? Before we look at Jesus' response, we need to note something here. The scribes and the Pharisees were likely correct in their pronouncement of the guilt and punishment of this woman. We don't know all the details. We do know that the, the, the law prescribed that those who committed adultery, certain cases of it, there were different punishments of them, and one of them certainly was stoning. But what's interesting to note is that in the law, both offenders are commanded to be put to death. And the question that we should be thinking through as we read this text is, where's the man? This woman was caught in the act of adultery. It wasn't because they couldn't find him. It wasn't uh, like a mistake. It shows us that the Pharisees and the scribes were not really concerned about the law. They were after Jesus. They wanted to assert their own authority, protect their own reputation, and discredit Jesus in whatever it takes. So look back at verse 6. They said this to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote, in the ground with his finger. Jesus started writing in the sand, and as he was doing this, the Pharisees thought they were winning, and so they continued to press Jesus, the text says. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. Jesus' response here is incredible. It's shocking. It's unexpected, but at the same time, it's not. For those of us who have heard the story or maybe uh, read this story many, many times, and we know the outcome, some of the punch that is packed in Jesus' words can be diffused. But for the scribes and the Pharisees living in real time, this would have been shocking to them. Because upon first hearing, they would have thought they had beaten Jesus. He finally upheld the law in their minds. He commanded us to stone her. But as the dust settled, so to speak, as the words of Jesus settled on the scribes and Pharisees' hearts and they registered with them the wisdom and power of Jesus full of grace and truth rested so heavy on them and brought conviction. Jesus perfectly balanced truth and grace. Isn't this what John tells us in John chapter 1? That when he took on flesh, he's the revelation of truth and grace. Here we see it in action. Jesus knows the law. He knows it far better than these scribes and Pharisees do. He affirms what he's always said. He didn't come to get rid of the law, but to uphold it 
and to demonstrate the grace and mercy of God through it. And these Pharisees can't see it. We need to highlight three things from Jesus' response here. Number one, Jesus did not undermine, devalue, or dismiss the law. The law is a concept that's foreign to us in our day. But the law was was God's covenant that he had made with his chosen people, the nation of Israel. It was his rules and standards that he required them to live by, to live in the covenant with him. He would be their God, and their responsibility was to live in the covenant, to, to live out the rules. And what we find out is that they could never do that. And what Paul tells us is actually the law was given not for the purpose of keeping it, because we couldn't, it was given to show us that we need a savior. The law always pointed to Jesus. But Jesus does not undermine the law. He invited the Pharisees to cast stones. He knew they wouldn't, though. Because in Jesus' pronouncement of judgment, he included the full law something they neglected, something already demonstrated by the fact that they didn't bring the man, they weren't concerned about the law, they were concerned about their reputation and discrediting Jesus. Jesus brought the full weight of the law. In essence, when Jesus replied to them, he said this, you're correct in understanding the particulars of this law. But if you're going to hold this woman accountable you better hold yourselves accountable too. And when the Pharisees heard that, they were cut to the heart. I, I don't know if they were already holding stones, but you can imagine if Pharisees, they were there ready to stone this woman, holding those stones, when the weight of Jesus' words landed on them, just the thuds of the stones dropping. And the text tells us when they heard it, when they realized it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Jesus did not undermine the law. Neither, point number two, did Jesus dismiss the woman's sin. Look back at verse uh, 10 through 11. Jesus stood up to her and he said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This woman had been publicly humiliated. She had been caught in the act of adultery. She was dragged out and publicly declared guilty before Jesus. It's likely she's standing there before Jesus completely exposed the charge of sin and the sentence called for were both just just and right. And now she's standing before Jesus and it's more than likely that she knew who Jesus was. She had probably heard about Jesus. If, if you are familiar with John's gospel in chapter 7, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for a feast and he goes up 
but he's delayed in going. And the text tells us that there was much muttering about Jesus among the people in Jerusalem because of his authoritative authoritative teaching and his miracle working powers. He was different. So it's likely this woman had heard about Jesus. She calls him Lord. So she recognized something about Jesus. And here she is standing completely exposed, completely vulnerable, physically, spiritually, justly condemned for a sin she did commit. And Jesus looks at this woman with grace and mercy in his eyes, flowing from his heart. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus sees all of her sin, all of her shame. He knows the law. He knows everything about this woman. He knows about her guilt. And he looks at her and he says, I forgive you. He's essentially saying to the guilty defendant, you're guilty, but you will go free. And you're free to sin no more. Jesus doesn't dismiss her sin. He doesn't act like it's not real, that it's, it's just something that can be looked over or not dealt with. But Jesus looks at her and he offers her mercy and grace. I don't condemn you. I won't charge this to your account. But don't do this anymore. Don't continue continue down this path. He condemns the sin, but not the sinner. To the sin, he says, no more. To the sinner, he offers mercy and grace. How could Jesus do this? This seems like this is a complete violation of the law, a uh, uh, overlooking of the law. How could Jesus do this and still uphold the law, still be holy and righteous and not deal with sin? Well, it's not like the Pharisees could do it. Because Jesus' words pointed out they weren't capable of fulfilling the law and sentencing this woman to death without themselves following with the same sentence. But there was one there that day who could. He was the one writing in in the sand. He was the one who was perfect. He was the one who did fulfill the law. He was the one who could cast the first stone because he was without sin. And he's the one who's now standing before her, completely exposed spiritually, physically, and he looks at her and he offers her mercy and grace. How could he do that? And this is where we get to the heart of Jesus in the gospel. This is why Jesus came to earth. Because here's the reality that the law points to us to. Sin exacts a cost. It costs something. There's a debt 
for sin that has to be paid because it's an offense against God. It can't be left undone. It's a debt that every human owes, but that no human can pay on their own. And Jesus came to earth to deal with the debt. But not in the way that we probably think. As the Holy One, he came in the flesh to exact payment for this debt, but instead of coming to collect our debt, Jesus came to pay it himself. This is why Jesus came to earth. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't because he was forced. It wasn't because this is so much better, this place is so much better than heaven where Jesus had resided from eternity past in perfection and unity with the Father and the Spirit. No, Jesus came to earth to save sinners from sin. He came to provide a way when there was no way. He came to give hope when there was no hope. He came to give life when there was only death. And to do that, he would have to take our place. Jesus came to take our place. John, in his letter, his first letter, says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us first. And in what way? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus came to be our payment. He came to be our substitute. He came to take our place so that we could take his place before the Father. So that as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, Jesus became sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So that when God looks at us, He doesn't dismiss our sin. He doesn't overlook it. He sees that we are guilty sinners, but he sees that the debt that we owe was paid by Jesus on our behalf. The heart of God is for sinners. Not that he would leave them in their sin, but that he would come and rescue and redeem them. So how could Jesus look at this woman and offer her mercy and grace? Because he knew what he had come to do. He knew what he would do for her in the days ahead, and what he would do for you, and what he would do for me. When he went to that cross, he paid the debt so that anyone who would turn to Christ in faith and repentance he would look at and say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So the final thing we need to see from this text is that Jesus is full of mercy and grace towards sinners. So how should we respond to this text this morning? How should we go from this place beholding the grace and the mercy and the holiness of Jesus, how should we change? The easy 
way out, really, the easy application would be to place ourselves in Jesus' footsteps to see him as our example of how we should see or treat sinners, right? The easy exhortation for me to give to you today is be like Jesus, show mercy and grace, don't judge. And to a certain extent, that's an appropriate call for us. Jesus does function as an example for us. Peter tells us that. But Jesus isn't only an example for us. And here's the reality. You and me aren't Jesus. We aren't full of grace and truth. We aren't perfect and righteous. We're sinners who have been covered by his blood if we've come to him in faith. But even in that, we are still so full of sin. We struggle with sin immensely. We mess up big time. Not just little ways, right? We don't just lose our temper occasionally. We don't just drop four-letter words on accident once a month or whatever. We mess up like big time. We wander. We stray. And even though we know the truth of the gospel and the goodness of God's grace and his mercy, from time to time, we still choose our sin over our Savior. The reality is we align a lot more with the woman in this story than with Jesus. And we act a lot more like the Pharisees in this story than Jesus. We love to focus on other people and what's going on in their lives as a way to distract people from seeing the real us. And we love to build ourselves up and justify ourselves because we know if if we spent too long focusing on ourselves or letting people get too close and being too vulnerable, what they would really find is something even even saved people still messy ugly sin. The brutally honest truth that we don't want to hear is we're more like the woman than we want to admit. All of us enter the world and stand before God as this woman stood before Jesus. Sinful, exposed, guilty, and helpless. It doesn't matter how good we look on the outside. It doesn't matter how, uh, how put together we are, how good our family is. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money we have or the background we come from or the experiences we have. We all stand before Jesus naked and exposed in our soul and he sees the depths of sin within us and he offers us the same thing he offers this woman. Mercy and grace. Our only hope is that Jesus would treat us as he treated her. And the good news that the scripture tells us is that Jesus always treats sinners this way. It's who he is. When a sinner comes to Jesus, he responds with mercy and grace. His heart is for sinners So if you haven't come to know Jesus today, he invites you to come. 
if you would call on Jesus and acknowledge your sin before a holy God and you would turn away from it and you would ask him to save you, he promises that he will. For those of us here today who have done that, but when we get really honest and we open up about how sinful we really still are, And we remember the truth that we still stand like this woman before Jesus, exposed. He still sees the depths of depravity in remaining in our hearts that God has has rendered a death blow to, but that still raise their ugly heads within us. We still act like this woman. We still struggle as part of the process of growing in Christ-likeness, it's a process which means it's not instant and it's not complete. We still mess up. We still go back to our sin. We still choose it. We still justify it. We become blind to it at times. Yet we're still treated by Jesus the same way he treated this woman. He calls us back to himself and he offers us mercy and grace. So my closing encouragements for you this morning is this. To the one who's never come to know Jesus before, come. He will treat you as this woman. He won't reject you. He won't condemn you. Your sin is not so big. It's not so ugly. It's not so strong that his grace and his mercy can't take care of it. He went to the cross for you. Come, repent of your sin. Ask God to save you. He will. To the one this morning who's caught and entrapped in your sin, come. No doubt in our church family of believers, there are many here who wrestle with sin in big ways. Satan loves for, to, to whisper lies to you. God's grace isn't enough for you this time. You did it again. You better clean yourself up before you go see Jesus. Better try harder. Your sin's not a big deal. It's not hurting anything. One more look's not gonna hurt. Taking a little bit of extra money off your taxes, not a big deal. Government will never know. No, the evil one wants you to believe lies that Jesus will reject you, that you have to do something before you come to Jesus. And Jesus shows us in this woman, in this story with this woman, come. Don't believe the lie that dealing with your sin and the consequences is worse than just continuing in it. Don't believe the lie that you have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Don't believe the lie that your sin is better than what Jesus offers. May the gospel of Jesus 
Refresh our hearts. Would we repent of our sin, drag it into the light, turn away from it. Jesus calls us to to, to do it no more. And in doing so, before that, he says, I I will not condemn you. I went to the cross for you. I paid the full price. Don't do it anymore. He will be faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you, to help you, and to keep you. To the one who's focused on the sins of others more than yourself. Come to Jesus. See his heart towards sinners in the gospel. See his heart towards you in this story and grow in the grace and mercy of Jesus as he demonstrates for us in this passage. Our Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you that we can come to you exposed